All right, turn your Bibles with me to Psalm 17. Psalm 17. When Pastor Eric is not here or not filling the pulpit, we are working our way sequentially through the Psalms. This Sunday, I have the privilege of preaching from Psalm 17. And next Sunday, Michael will be preaching on Psalm 18. I want to encourage you to remember to be praying for the preaching and teaching of the word here at Grace Rancho. To be praying for the hearts of the congregation as well as praying for the preacher. And to remember to say thank you to Pastor Eric for laboring so faithfully to teach God's word to us. All of us need encouragement. Our pastor is no exception. And as the Lord ministers to you through his word, don't worry about over complimenting, saying thank you too often. Don't worry about giving him a big head. God will take care of that, right? As the Lord blesses you with the teaching of the word, remember to say thank you. And while you're doing that, remember to say thank you to so many people here who labor faithfully in kids ministry, in the sound booth, and so many other ways. We are so blessed the ways that people serve every single Sunday. All right, with that, Follow along in Psalm 17. I'm going to read the whole psalm. Psalm 17, a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who take, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings, from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity, with their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps, they set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion, eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Let's pray, and then we will dive in. Father, we ask now that you would revive our souls, that you would make us wise, that you would rejoice our hearts, and you would enlighten our eyes. Spirit, we ask that you would apply this word to our hearts for your glory pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, the purpose of an introduction of a sermon is to provide a good hook. 
to say something witty or funny or compelling or really profound. So the people say, wow, I really want to know what's coming next. Perhaps it causes them to sit up a little straighter, move to the edge of their seat and think, man, if the introduction was that good, what's the rest of the sermon going to be like? I mean, if the appetizer was that delicious, what's the meal going to taste like, right? Well, I don't want to lower your expectations or anything, but uh, for the introduction today, I just want you to write down three words. Three words are life is hard. Hmm. Life is hard. If you want to add a fourth that says duh, you can. All right, kids, don't say duh at home, but I'm giving you permission now. Life is hard, duh. Well, that's pretty clear from Psalm 17. Pretty clear from Psalm 17. And the context, while it's not explicit, we're not 100% sure, it seems that David is probably on the run from King Saul. He's probably on the run from King Saul. If you want to read more about that, I invite you to look at 1 Samuel chapter 16 through 1 Samuel 30, where Saul, the anointed king of Israel, has been rejected by God because of his disobedience. And God has asked the prophet Samuel to anoint David as the next king of Israel. Saul doesn't like that. And as a result, he grows increasingly paranoid and desperate to do away with David in order to preserve the kingship for his son, Jonathan. So that's most likely the context of Psalm 17, where David prays in response to this. And we see this as a real trial with potentially deadly consequences. In verse 7, we see that David refers to his adversaries. And in verse 9, he talks about the wicked that do him violence as deadly enemies who surround him. Verse 10, they close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. And in verse 11, they have surrounded our steps. They set our eyes to cast us to the ground. In verse 12, they are like a lion that is eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. So this is serious. And in response to that, David prays. But we've seen in our study over the past few years with Psalms that this is not necessarily a unique situation. In Psalm 3, David was betrayed by his son Absalom. Psalm 6, he's dealing with a severe spiritual and physical trial. Psalm 7, dealing with the pain of false accusations. And in Psalm 13, something that is so severe, so significant, he feels like God has forgotten about him or perhaps even abandoned him. And this is instructive to us. And we just don't want to miss sometimes what should be obvious. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat the challenges of life in a fallen world. It deals with the raw, the agonizing nature of life that's filled with all sorts of difficulty, a world that's filled with sin and brokenness. But it's not just the writers of the Psalms. We see it in all the pages of the Bible. Our very Savior Jesus was described as a man of sorrows, one who was acquainted with grief. And before he left the earth, in John chapter 16, verse 33, he says to his disciples, know that in the world you will have tribulation. So we, we see it in Psalm 17 and the rest of the Psalms. We see it in the rest of the Bible. We know it from the promise that Jesus gave to his disciples. We see it in the news every day, and we feel it in our own lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters here at Grace Rancho. Pick up a copy of your member directory, and you'll see a wide spectrum of life's trials on display. 
I did that in preparation for today's sermon. And I just want to run through some of the things that I saw in, that's happening right now in the lives of our members. Relational challenges, family-related things, parents and children estranged from one another, marriage struggles, parenting struggles with children of all ages, even into adulthood, broken friendships, divorce, unsaved loved ones, loved ones that are making terrible, sinful choices, their physical and emotional trials, incurable diseases, unrelenting pain, infertility, crippling fear and anxiety, worn-out joints that need replacing, insomnia, migraine headaches, and personal trials, people that are disconnected and lonely, people that are struggling with sadness and depression, addiction and enslavement to various sins, spiritual lethargy, deep financial struggles, confusion and lack of clarity with big life choices, and justice and false accusations. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Hey, let's be honest. This is life, right? This is life, and this is life together, and we can be honest about that. So life is hard, duh. But we come to Psalm 17, and what does this have to do with Psalm 17? Why the extended introduction on something that seems kind of patently obvious? Well, I submit to you that Psalm 17 provides really helpful instruction and encouragement to us. It's a lament psalm, one of about 50 psalms that honestly acknowledges the difficulty of life, but sees the crisis as an opportunity to cry out to God in faith and with hope. Why are one-third plus of the psalms about lamenting? Well, God is so wise. He's so wise. And he knows that we need lots and lots and lots of reminders. So with that lens, let's look at Psalm 17. It's a desperate prayer of David in desperate times. And our outline today consists of four things that David did while he was crying out to God in prayer. And these four things provide encouragement and exhortation to us as we are facing or certainly will face our own trials. First is trust. The second is obey. The third is remember. And the fourth is rest. So let's start with trust. Verse number one. David says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Three times, in three different ways, he's crying out to God and saying, Lord, hear my prayer. Hear my appeal. Please listen. And let's just not miss the obvious. In the midst of his desperate trial, David prays. He cries out to God in prayer. And that's what lament is. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. It's a beautiful gift that gives us the opportunity to be honest about the pain in our lives. We can come to God with that, but we don't get stuck there. On one hand, it guards us from pretending that life is not difficult or that we don't struggle. The Christian life is not about just keeping a stiff upper lip and just repeating the mantra that we're fine, we're fine, we're fine. No, rather, we can be honest with God about our struggles, but while we do that, we can remember that he is with us, that his character is unchanging, and that he is powerful in the midst of however hard a situation we may be in. 
And as we lament, we remember that God invites us to come to him and cry out to him with our mess. We remember who he is, we remember what he has promised, and we remember that he is present with us. And as we do so, lament becomes a pathway to praise. It becomes a pathway to praise. We cling to faith, we give thanks, and are renewed in hope in the midst of the difficulty, even if circumstances don't change. Now, how does David demonstrate trust by turning to God in the midst of the dangerous trial he's facing? In other words, what does he believe about God that motivates or compels his prayer? So we're just going to look at verses in Psalm 17 that show what David believes about God. And we're going to do it quickly as we, as we move through. First, he believes that God is a God of justice in verse 1. He also believes that God is a God of righteousness. We see that in verse 2. <clears throat> he believes that God is a God who knows all, even what is in his heart. Verse 3. He believes that God is near to those who call on him, a God who hears and answers prayer in verse 6. He recognizes that God is a God of steadfast love, that he is a savior and he is a refuge in verse 7. That God is a keeper and protector in verse 8. That God has great power and has the authority to deliver from verse 13. And in verse 15, that God resurrects the righteous and will provide eternal joy and satisfaction. And so you see it's these beliefs about God that fuels David's prayer in this most desperate situation. The late theologian A.W. Tozer said this, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And in a similar way, What comes into your mind when you think about God will determine your response in a crisis situation. What comes into your mind when you think about God will determine your response in a crisis situation. Do you trust God, church? Do you really trust him, brothers and sisters? Do your beliefs about God compel you to pray? If you do trust God, you'll pray. But if you don't, there's all sorts of directions that you'll turn. You could turn inward, and when that happens, you could withdraw. You could turn inward into greater selfishness or loneliness or isolation or depression. You could stay focused on the past and live in regret and shame and guilt, or you could focus on all the what-ifs about the unknowns of the future and give yourself to anxiety or fear. That would be a wrong response in crisis, It would show that we don't really trust God the way that we say we do. You could also turn outward. Sometimes we do that. We immerse ourselves in all sorts of things that distract us. Perhaps it's friends, real or, or virtual. Perhaps it's hobbies or endless entertainment that could amuse or distract or numb, try to escape. We could also turn downward into sin. In a crisis situation, sin perhaps looks more attractive. It's so deceptive. It offers the illusion of comfort. It offers temporary pleasure. It offers a momentary escape, but only offers further enslavement and truth. So Psalm 17 reminds us that the direction that we should look in the midst of a crisis situation, or any situation for that matter, is upward 
that we can turn our gaze to God, to make prayer our first response, to cry out to the God who is just, to cry out to the one who is righteous, to the one who hears prayers and answers. Before I move on to our second point, I just want to encourage those who perhaps are in the midst of a really difficult or desperate situation. Maybe even right now, this morning, you're feeling weak in faith. Perhaps you feel like your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. Perhaps you're trying to trust, but it just doesn't seem to be working. The darkness isn't lifting, and perhaps you feel like you're down to your last mustard seed of faith. Let me just remind you that your trust is not in the measure of your faith. It's in the object of your faith. Your trust should not be in the measure of your faith and how you feel. It's in the object of your faith. Your trust is not in your feelings or in your own strength. Rather, it's in God's unchanging character. So don't give up. Keep trusting and crying out to God. That's point number one. David trusted God while he was praying. His trust in God compelled him to pray. Point number two, obey. The second thing that David does while he's praying is obey. We see this in verses two through five. The prayer begins with an earnest cry out to God to hear his prayer. And then it takes an interesting turn. In the next several verses, it's almost like we've dropped into a courtroom scene where David is pleading his case to God, the judge of the universe. He believes that God rewards obedience and in this case appeals to his integrity as a case for God to hear and answer his prayer for deliverance. He begins by saying, hear a just cause and then from your presence, let my vindication come. Clear me of any blame, suspicion, or guilt. I want it to come from your hand. Let me be vindicated according to truth and righteousness. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. Rather, I'm looking to you as the judge, as the righteous one. You will do what is right. In verse 3, then, he makes three appeals. He says, I'm innocent. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. Wow, that's a pretty, pretty big statement. David is saying, Externally and even internally, at the heart level, God, you know my thoughts, you know my motivations, you know my desires. And even at night, when I'm alone, when sin can flourish, temptation can abound, says I'm not compromised. I'm living a life of obedience and integrity. Now, David is not claiming that he is completely without sin. He's saying, in this matter, I have confessed all known sin and I'm not living in known sin. So what has kept David from sinning? Verse 4 instructs us. He says, With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. David says, I have avoided sin by the Lord's word. And in verse 5, he says, My steps have held fast to your paths. What has kept David from sinning? It's the Lord's word and staying in the Lord's paths. So you see, David is appealing to God in this very specific way. Hear my prayer. I'm innocent of known sin. I have been and I am being obedient. 
How hypocritical would it be to plead for justice, to plead for deliverance from God, if he had committed sin or was committing sin to bring on or exacerbate the problem? Now, understand, God is merciful, and he gives mercy to those who don't deserve it. He answers prayers to those who don't deserve. If perfection were required in our lives, we would have no hope of God ever answering our prayers. He is merciful. And on the same token, living obediently doesn't guarantee that God will answer our prayers in the ways that we want. And yet, with that understanding, we can say with confidence that the life of a praying person should be above reproach. An upright life is a basis for appealing to God. But our prayers are hindered and we mock God by crying out to him in prayer while living a life of known and unconfessed sin. If you want to look at a reference there, you can look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. It talks a little bit more about that. So obedience is so important since sin often comes easy when we're in the midst of a trial. You see, we can't control circumstances or those around us, but we can choose to obey or disobey in response. So how about you? When the pressure is on, when you're in the midst of a trial, when you're dealing with a desperate situation, do you turn to sin for a measure of comfort or escape? There's all sorts of opportunities. Pornography, alcohol, drugs, excessive entertainment, gluttony, etc. Do you grumble and complain against God? Do you lash out in anger, impatience, or unkindness to others? Do you descend into self-pity, <clears throat> sullenness, or despair? Do you give yourself to anxiety and fear in a frantic bid to maintain control? Do you stop serving others, wrongly determining that your problems or issues are way more important than theirs and nobody would understand anyway? Or do you get lazy and neglect important responsibilities? These are important questions because we're all tempted in these ways in the midst of a difficult situation. Praise the Lord that there is mercy for sufferers who pile sin on top of their list of burdens. Praise the Lord for his mercy. And it's a good reminder here in Psalm 17, the first six verses, how in the midst of a desperate situation, we can trust. We can cry out to God and entrust to him the things that we can't control. And we can obey. We can obey. In the midst of a trial, with the Spirit's help, we can choose to obey and submit to God in all things. All right, so that's point number one and number two, trust and obey. After trust and obey, our third point is remember. Remember. In verse 7, after David says, I've trusted, I'm trusting, I've obeyed, and I am obeying. Verse 7, he says, wondrously show me your steadfast love. Wondrously show me your steadfast love. Does that strike you as a little odd? Enemies are surrounding, ready to tear David apart like a lion. And he says, show me your love. God, I'm in a big jam right now. Would you please tell me how you feel about me? No, that's not, what, that's not what's happening at all. 
It's nice to know that someone loves you, but it's really that much more important that they're capable of being a savior of those who seek refuge from surrounding threats. When David says, wondrously show me your steadfast love, this is an appeal to action. It's an appeal for God to act. And that is where the words steadfast love are so instructive to us. The word steadfast love, two words in English, it's a single word in Hebrew. And I'm not going to be able to pronounce it properly, but it's pronounced hesed in English by this guy, right? There's some guttural sound there that I won't even try for you there. All right? Hesed, H-E-S-E-D. It's the first time we've come across this word in our study of the Psalms. Hesed means love but also is infused with words like kindness, faithfulness, mercy, goodness, and loyalty. And given the richness of all the concepts that are contained in this one word, translators have struggled to know how to convey it. The ESV, as we've read, calls it steadfast love. Other translations refer to it as covenant love or faithful love, great love, true love, loyal love, or even the compound word, loving kindness. There's so many things that are built into it, it's difficult to really just try to describe it succinctly. Well, with all of those concepts, what is it? Here, here it is. Steadfast love, or the Hebrew word, has said. It's the love that compels God to make a covenant and to bind himself to that covenant in all his dealings with his people. It's the love that compels God to make a covenant and to bind himself to that covenant in all his dealings with his people. God has bound himself to his people and he is utterly faithful to that self-commitment. Consider Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Moses, before he leads the people, says, Lord, I need to see your glory. If you don't go with us, we are doomed. Show me your glory. And in response, in Exodus chapter 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So David says, show me your steadfast love. Show it wondrously. Show it in a new and extraordinary manner as I take refuge in you. And then in verse 8, he says, keep me as the apple of your eye. The apple of your eye is your pupil, that which is most precious and delicate. Protect me. I'm taking refuge in you. And would you hide me in the shadow of your wings? The imagery is that of a mother bird providing shelter and protection and safety a helpless little baby. Is David just coming up with interesting and unique and colorful metaphors here? Well, yes, but he's also alluding to prior passages in the Old Testament that reference God's steadfast love. Exodus chapter 15 and Deuteronomy chapter 32, two different songs of Moses recorded for us after God delivered his people from slavery and provided victory over their enemies. Some of those same phrases are used in the songs that Moses gave in Exodus chapter 15 and Deuteronomy chapter 32. Now David borrows that same language here in Psalm 17. And what's the point? The reference is clear. 
God has made promises to his people. He has kept those promises in the past, and God is unchanging. Therefore, God can be expected to continue to keep his covenant promises to David, even in the most challenging and difficult circumstances. That's the steadfast love of our God. So David cries out to God, knowing that he will hear, knowing that he will answer, and he will do so in a way that is consistent with his covenant love and faithfulness. So let's press in a little bit more to God's steadfast love. There is great insight and comfort for us this morning. There are over 250 instances of steadfast love in the Old Testament, and about half of them are in the Psalms. So I just want to briefly talk about five things that we can know about God's steadfast love. And I'd encourage you to dig in further on your own or with a family member or friend. First is, God's steadfast love endures forever. God's steadfast love endures forever. Why? Because it's tied to God's unchanging character. So his steadfast love endures forever. It keeps going and going and going and going. The Energizer Bunny has nothing on God's steadfast love, right? Throughout the Psalms, we see God's steadfast love endures forever. And Psalm 136 has 26 verses, and it's included in every single one of those verses. God's steadfast love endures forever. We can take comfort in that. Number two, God's steadfast love for his children is not passive. It's not passive. Every moment of every day, it's coming for you. Psalm 23, verse 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy, that's steadfast love, has said, shall follow me all the days of my life. That word follow is often used in a negative context. It normally describes the action of pillaging armies and covenant curse. But the psalmist here is convinced that instead of the covenant curse that he deserves, the Lord's faithful love and goodness will hunt him down relentlessly. Isn't that a great thought? Isn't that a great thought? God's love, even now, is pursuing you, hunting you down. It's not passive. It's actively pursuing you all the days of your life. Number three, God's steadfast love is a reason for daily joy. A reason for daily joy. Psalm 90 verse 14 says, Satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all all our days. And you may be here this morning and say, You know what? Uh, I don't feel glad. I don't feel like steadfast love is pursuing me. I don't feel satisfied at all. And I'm having a really hard time rejoicing and being glad. I look at circumstances all around me And it feels hopeless. Well, I encourage you to pray with Moses in Psalm 90 that says, God, satisfy my heart with your steadfast love each and every day. And to pray along with David in Psalm 17. Lord, wondrously show me your steadfast love. I'm desperate. I feel hopeless. Everywhere I turn, the view seems to be terrible. So show me your steadfast love. Demonstrate your faithfulness. Provide mercy. Be true to your promises. You are my refuge. My hope is in you. Number four, God's steadfast love should be called to mind. Listen, each one of us has a track record of God's steadfast love and faithfulness from our lives. But when we're struggling, 
we can easily ignore or forget God's track record of covenant faithfulness, can't we? It's so easy to complain about the past or to dwell on the what-ifs of the future. So we need to remember God's steadfast love by calling it to mind, by making the effort to think about it. In Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah is in the midst of a terrible situation. Jerusalem is being sacked by the Babylonians, and I'd encourage you to read the book of Lamentations if you ever are feeling bad about your life. It might just help you to feel better just by reading it. He's in the midst of a horrible situation. The situation is terribly bleak. And in verse 21 of Lamentations chapter 3, the very middle of the book, he says, but this I call to mind. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. How could you call the steadfast love of the Lord to mind? Think about that. It takes effort. It takes intention. It's worth the effort. Number five, God's steadfast love is the heart of the gospel. God's steadfast love is the heart of the gospel. In the New Testament, the equivalent Greek word for steadfast love is often translated mercy. I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be reading the first few verses because I want you to see this. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich, in mercy, mercy, that steadfast love right there, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with, with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God's steadfast love is at the heart of the gospel. We were dead. We were by nature objects of wrath. We were enslaved to sin. And God is so holy, he must punish sin. Our sin had separated us from God. Jesus was the only one to perfectly fulfill the law. He was treated by God as a covenant breaker and was punished in our place for our sin on the cross. Why? Why would God do that? Because he is rich in steadfast love. He is rich in mercy. Our need is so great, there was no way that we could ever save ourselves. So because of his steadfast love, because of his mercy, rather than treating us as our sin deserves, he extends kindness and compassion and steadfast love. He offers his mercy freely to all who, have, who would repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus. Listen, do you doubt God's steadfast love for you? Look to the cross. Look to Jesus. Look away from yourself. Look away from your problems. Look at God crushing his own son 
so that you can be made alive in Christ, so that you can know his steadfast love, so that he can be your refuge now and for all of eternity. See the magnificent, overflowing, overwhelming love of God in Christ. Let it melt your pride and cause you to run to Jesus as a great Savior. If you've not ever repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, you can do so today. Even right now, God is rich in mercy and he will freely receive you. The reason you're here today is because God's steadfast love is pursuing you. So don't turn away. Fall at his feet and surrender your life to him. And to my Christian brothers and sisters, we're not immune to the struggle. We've talked about that. The pain of various trials can be intense. Look to the cross. Look at the father not willing to spare his own son so that you could be his son or daughter. Hear him saying, I am for you. And remember that all of his promises are yes and amen in Christ. Have hope and courage to face whatever trials God sends your way. And remember, even the trials are part of his steadfast love that is relentlessly pursuing you all the days of your life. All right. Our fourth word is rest. We got trust, obey, remember, and rest. Our fourth word is rest. Back in Psalm 17. Back in Psalm 17, we're in verse 13. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. The danger is real. And again, we see the faith of David expressing itself in his plea for deliverance. But don't miss the truth that undergirds these verses. Even while David is pleading for deliverance, he's resting in what he knows to be true about God and what he knows to be true about his relationship with God. Verse 14, he says, Deliver me, deliver my soul. Excuse me, that's verse 13. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. What's this about portion and what does it have to do with anything? The men of this world have a portion, and it's in this life. When we think about portion, think of an inheritance or an allotment. We often think of portion like the tribes of Israel receiving their portion or allotment of land in the promised land. So verse 14 says that the men of this life who are pursuing David have a portion, and it's all in this life. You see, God is the giver of all the good gifts. He is the one who fills a womb with treasure, who provides children, who provides wealth, who makes the sunshine and the rain fall. But the men in verse 14 don't recognize these gifts as being from God. As a result, they don't give him thanks or seek to live for his glory. They're happy with the house, with the kids, with a fat retirement account. But they give no thought to God as the creator or the reality of eternity, and it shows in the way that they live, selfishly and cruelly. What about David? What's his portion? Let's turn back to Psalm 16. Justin taught on this a few months ago. David's portion. Psalm 16, verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Psalm 16, verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. And then Psalm 16, 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What is David's portion? 
Rather, who is David's portion? It's God. God is his inheritance. God is the source of all that is good. Riches, job, health, family, all the other good things that God gives, they're temporal. They're temporal. They will fail. But God is the all-sufficient one, and he is enough. When God is our portion, we lack nothing. Even in the midst of a desperate trial, we can rest in that truth. Last verse, Psalm 17, verse 15. As for me, as for me, in contrast to the wicked who are only living for things in this life, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. In the midst of a dangerous, desperate trial, David recognizes that there's much more to life than enjoying temporal pleasure. Eternity is what matters. Now, it doesn't remove all the urgency from the present situation, which is why he prayed as he did. But eternity with God offers massively important perspective. In this life, we can know with confidence and rest in the fact that God is going to be faithful to his steadfast love and covenant promises. We recognize, however, that it perhaps doesn't look like we had envisioned it or exactly what we would prefer. It's not going to be a life of ease and comfort because life is hard. Duh. But beyond this life, we can know and rest that when we sleep, the sleep of death, two things are going to happen. For those who know Christ, we will behold the face of God in righteousness, and we will be satisfied. And this view of eternity is what gives David in Psalm 17 and believers in Rancho Cucamonga in 2022 great confidence to call upon God in this life, to maintain a Godward orientation, to live a life of integrity according to God's words and God's paths, and to be able to rest in saying, surely goodness and steadfast love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Pastor and theologian James Hamilton says this about Psalm 17. I think it's a good synopsis. The Lord is so good, so powerful, so wise, and so comforting that moments of difficulty and crisis become moments in which God's people celebrate his reliability, his steadfast love, his comforting justice, and his faithfulness to his own word. For those who know him, it is a joy to call upon him, and calling on him is enough. And if the answer is delayed for the duration of one's earthly life, hope will never fail. So in closing, life is hard. That's the reality in a fallen world. That's the reality in a fallen world. In the midst of whatever tough stuff we're facing, let's trust God. Demonstrate our trust by crying out to God in prayer. Let's obey. Let's humbly submit to God's word and stay on his path. Let's remember, regularly calling to mind God's steadfast love, 
that endures forever and pursues us every moment, every day. And let's rest. In every day of this life and every day of our eternity, God is sufficient and God is enough. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word to us in Psalm 17. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your kindness in preserving it to us. Lord, thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit who illuminates our hearts and illuminates our minds so that we can know and understand. And I pray, Father, that our hearts now would be like good soil, hearing your word, receiving it with joy, and bearing fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.